Are you proud to be associated with him? Do you bow your head in, in public when you go to lunch after church or during the week? Or are you embarrassed to do that? Do you acknowledge on Monday that you were in church on Sunday? Are you ashamed to own him as your God? Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Book of Romans, and last week we spent time in Chapter 2 looking at individuals who believed their behavior was better than the behavior of those the Apostle Paul mentioned in the previous chapter, and thus they trusted in a works-based salvation. Today we pick up from the second half of chapter 2, where Paul looks at the Jews who felt that as God's chosen people, they were safe in their salvation because they fell under a different judgment than Gentiles. If anybody could feel secure, the Jewish people felt like they could be. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee before his conversion. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a leader amongst the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin. And so Paul understood the way these people thought. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he highlights eight ways in which a faithful Jew thought he would be eternally secure. And after he highlights those areas in which they place their confidence, he pulls the rug out from under their feet and shows them that they are guilty. Now, there are eight verbs in the original. Some of the nouns there look like verbs, but there's only eight verbs in the original. And those eight verbs reflect eight reasons why a Jewish person felt safe and everything was okay. Reason number one for their false confidence. They felt safe because of their special name. They felt safe because of their special name. Again, verse 17 begins with the words, but if you bear the name Jew... Now, in that day, the Jewish person was the most religious person alive. It's certainly not true in our day, but it was true in that day. Today, it might be the fervent Catholic, maybe the zealous Muslim, maybe the passionate evangelical. But Paul wants to make it very clear that a profession of religion, even if it is biblically based, is not enough to make you right before God unless that somehow has transformed your life. So first, he says, you bear the name Jew, and they were proud of that name. Now, we know from biblical history, the first time uh, they're called Jews is in 2 Kings 16. And of course, the word Jew comes from the word Judeans, which is a short form of the word Judah. That means one who is praised. The Jewish people were praised. They were blessed. They were set apart by God as a unique people. But in the time of Christ, they had turned that great privilege into pride. And so the rabbis of the day taught, out of all the nations of the world, God loves Israel. And because he loves us, he will judge us by a different standard than he will judge the Gentiles. Every Jew, just like Muslims think this way, they think every Muslim will have a part in the coming kingdom. They argued in that day, there's a number of rabbinical writings that have been preserved. They said Abraham was at the gates of heaven and they would allow every Jew to come in, even wicked Israelites. Now, if you remember, the Lord dealt with that flagrant attitude in John chapter 8. Jesus spoke of some Jews who claimed to believe 
They were in reality unbelieving believers. And in John 8, he said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. The word abide or continue in some of our texts is the Greek word meno. It means to remain, to keep going. It implies obedience. And Jesus said, a true convert, Someone who has had a second birth, who has been born twice, is not content with a superficial attachment to his word. A true convert wants to know the word of God and obey the word of God. Continuing in the truth, abiding in the truth, is a mark of a true disciple. Every time the word disciple is used in the New Testament, it's not always used of a genuine Christian. Context determines meaning. And Jesus in John 8 speaks of deeds as not being the basis of salvation, but a manifestation of true legitimate salvation. The same thing he said in Matthew 7 when he will declare you will know them by their fruit. It's not enough to claim to possess Christ if he hasn't changed your life. And so he says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, the Lord is not speaking of physical freedom or political freedom, but as the context bears out, he's speaking of spiritual freedom. Now, the Bible teaches that sinners are enslaved on three levels, to the world, that is the world system around us, to the flesh, that sinful nature within, and the devil, the one who's energizing the world system and the one who tempts and shoots fiery darts at our sinful nature. And so these half-believed people who said that they were right with God, Jesus pulls back the veneer and shows how lost they were. And he shows that it is very possible in that chapter to hold something intellectually without ever having willfully embraced it. Where you can know the truth here, but you don't know it here. You know it in your mind, but you have not received it in your heart. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, Paul will argue in the 10th chapter. And so there are some people who have missed salvation by 18 inches. They answered Jesus, we're Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we shall become free? What do you mean free? We've always been free. Now, they don't deny that they've been enslaved to different people. They're not speaking in terms of physical freedom or political freedom. They're speaking here about spiritual freedom. And they're saying because we're Abraham's offspring, because we are descendants of him, we are right with God. They had lived first under servitude before the Egyptians, then the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks. And in Jesus' day, they were under the boot of Rome. It's what the prophet Daniel spoke of as the time of the Gentiles. And so the context is not dealing with physical, political freedom, but spiritual freedom. And they said, listen, we're identified with Abraham. We're direct descendants of him. We come out of his loins. You know, the one God calls the friend of God, the father of the faithful. And so they thought they were free. And just as those who think they are whole are not in need of a physician, even so those who think they are free will not see themselves in need of liberation. And until you see that you are spiritually enslaved, will you come to Christ for true freedom. Listen, I meet people every week, virtually every week, sometimes several times in a week, 
who on the outside, they know all the jargon, but on the inside, they are enslaved. And some who say, well, I've been baptized. I've joined a particular church. I've walked an aisle. I've prayed a prayer. I'm, I'm a member of Community Bible Church. God and I, we've got an understanding. God and I, you know, we're okay with one another. And they will tell me sometimes, look, I, I've been saved. And they associate salvation with some act. I've been saved, and God knows I'm saved, and I may get to heaven, and I may not have much, but God knows that you're saved by grace, and works really don't matter. That's called antinomianism. It was a heresy that was condemned in the early centuries by the church. Nomos is the Greek word for law, that you're saved by grace, and works don't matter. Well, listen, they're right on one hand. You are saved by grace, totally by grace, apart from works. But works do matter in the sense that they are the proof, the evidence, the fruit of genuine conversion. I cannot imagine anyone meeting God in heaven, thinking that they are going to heaven. And they say, look, Lord, we did all these external things in your name. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Listen, millions today in America bear the name Christian. I mean, it certainly sounds better than agnostic or atheist or pagan or unbeliever. Sure, I'm a Christian. And Paul is dealing with people who bear the name Jew. We're Jewish. We're Abraham's offspring. We're the chosen people. We're okay, Paul. And Paul's going to argue with them. You cannot skip the judgment of God and think that just because you bear the name Jew, you're fine. So first, they felt they were safe because of their special name. Secondly, they felt safe because of their possession of the law. Because of their possession of the law. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, the Jew not only had the advantage of the Hebrew birth, they had the advantage of possessing the Hebrew Bible. They relied upon the law. They rested, literally the Greek means, they leaned upon, they depended upon the law that God had given to them at Mount Sinai. That same word is used, epanapaomai, in the book of Micah, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what most Jews read in the first century because they had lost their ability to read Hebrew. They read the Septuagint. God uses that word. Her leaders pronounced judgment for a bribe, wrote Micah. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, same word. Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. And in spite of their sin, they were saying, in essence, nothing can happen to us. We lean on the Lord, we're fine. Even so, these Jews in Paul's day took great pride in the fact that they had been given the law, that God had given to them the law and the prophets. Now, it was not uncommon for Jews to have large sections of Scripture memorized, but the Bible had become like a good luck charm to them, and they thought that somehow that privilege would allow them to escape God's judgment. So when we come to the next chapter after he, he deals with all of their privileges and pulls the rug out and shows that they are guilty, Paul, using this diatribe form of reasoning, will say and anticipate the question that they will ask in chapter 3, then what advantage is there to being Jewish? 
And he'll say, great in every respect. First of all, you were entrusted with the oracles of God. God didn't entrust his word to just anybody. He made you the custodians of the law. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 147, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. That's why Moses could ask the people just before they went into the promised land, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? No nation to be entrusted with the very breath of God Almighty was a unique and powerful privilege that God had given to the Jew. But Paul will teach before he is finished that it is of no value in protecting you from the judgment of God. Now I wonder how many people today would say, well, I know I'm going to heaven. I have the Bible. I have verses even chapters memorized. I love my Bible. I know my Bible. I lean on my Bible. I rest in my Bible. I depend on my Bible. Well, I can promise you that you did not love the Bible more than a Jew loved the Old Testament. It's not enough to have possession. If that knowledge does not change you, it will only lead you to even more intense disaster. So they felt safe because of their special name. They felt safe because of their possession of the law. Third, they felt safe because of their respect for God. Because of their respect for God. The third verb is found here in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. Underscore that word boast. The faithful Jew not only felt safe because of his special name and his special possession, but because of his special respect. Unlike the Gentiles of that day who both by their actions and in their attitudes blasphemed the name of God. A Jew would never breathe anything disrespectful of God. In fact, when they even wrote the name of God before they wrote it, they would wash their hands they would take a brand new quill never used before just to write those four consonants, Y-H-W-H, and they would throw away the quill never to be used again. That's how high and holy they revered God. They had an incredible respect and pride in that they boasted in their God unlike the Gentile nations. Let me ask you a question. Are you proud to be associated with him? Do you bow your head in, in public when you go to lunch after church or during the week? Or are you embarrassed to do that? Do you acknowledge on Monday that you were in church on Sunday? Are you ashamed to own him as your God? Do you speak his name to others? Listen, you can do all that stuff externally like the Jew did. And be just as lost as can be. Now there's a fourth verb that captures their false confidence in that day. D on your outline, they felt safe because of their special knowledge. Because of their special knowledge. You bear the name Jew, rely upon the law, boast in God, and know His will. Now the word here, will, refers to the revealed will of God as found in Scripture. Literally, it says, and know the will. Because God's will is the will of all wills and all other wills are secondary to God's will. 
But the point is that some Jewish people in Paul's day thought that everything was fine between them and God because they knew the will of God. They knew God's law. They knew God's plans. They knew God's purposes. They knew God's way. Things the rest of the world knew very, very little of. But Paul has already pointed out in this chapter that it's not enough to know the will of God if you do not do the will of God. And so the moral man, he said in verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The will of God is found in the word of God. And many today know the will of God, but they don't keep the will of God. Paul, when he writes to the church at Thessalonica, says, for this is the will of God. Here's one example, that you abstain from sexual immorality or porneia, fornication. Here in this context, used broadly of any kind of sexual immorality. It refers to sex outside the bonds of marriage. And yet, in the church today, there are people who claim to be Christian, and yet they engage in the very things that non-Christians engage in as a lifestyle. People bear the name Christian. But for some, they're on their third, fourth, and fifth marriage, and, and divorce has just become a basis for serial adultery, and they're saying, I'm confident, I'm going to heaven. Does knowing the will of God make you right before God? It's not enough to know the will of God. And does knowing the will of God give you a greater sense of security, or does knowing the will of God cause you to fear? It should give you a greater sense of fear because when you're lost and you begin to discover the will of God, you see that you've not kept the will of God. In Luther's words, he says, the law was not given to justify, but to terrify and to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see why it would be so foolish for the Jew in that day to say, I'm safe because I know and understand God's standards for my life. God's standards cannot redeem you. It can only reveal you that you are a lawbreaker by nature. So they felt safe because of their name, because of their dedication to the law, because of their proud respect for God, because of their special knowledge of His will, but also they felt safe because of their keen discernment. Because of their keen discernment. A fifth reliance is found here in verse 18. Notice the next verb. And approve the things that are essential. Now, we already saw this Greek word dokimazo, which means to put something to the test and then to approve it as true. And the Jews, they, they prided themselves in testing everything. They claimed to have insight from God. They were well known for examining all the different worldviews and philosophies of the day. And they would test each one through the mode of Scripture, and only embrace those things that were true and essential and based on the Word of God. They were very sharp thinkers, and generationally that ability to think has been passed down from generation to generation to many Jews even in our day. But in the religious realm, the generation of Paul's day had dissected all this religious stuff. They had commentaries on commentaries and regulations on regulations. And they felt that because they were so discerning that they were essentially pleasing to God. But as we will see before Paul is done with this text, the things that were truly essential, honoring God, glorifying God, they had not done. So they felt safe because of their special name. They felt safe because of their possession of the law. 
They felt everything was okay because of their respect for God, their special knowledge, because of their keen discernment. Notice also they felt safe because of their biblical education. There's a sixth verb giving us a sixth reason, again in verse 18. And, as you Jews know as well, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. They claim to be biblically educated. In other words, the basis for approving and knowing God's will was being instructed out of the law. See those two English words, being instructed? It's the Greek word katecheo. You can hear our English word. Catechism. In other words, they were being catechized out of the scriptures. And the faithful Jew felt safe, just like many religious people today feel safe, for the exact same reasons. They know their creeds, they know their verses, they know the law, they know the name of the one true and living God, and they are sincere about it, and they're sincerely religious, but they're lost. There's a danger in thinking that you can know it all here, And know the plan of salvation. But you can know the plan without knowing the man. And it's very possible, especially a church like this. Especially a church that opens the word of God weekly. And say, listen, I know the Bible. I've received an education in it since childhood. I start talking to people sometimes who I know are living outward, openly immoralized, and they start telling me about their knowledge of the Bible. They say, listen, you know, we've received an education. I, I know more Bible than most people know. And that's the way the Jews thought. They said, we've been biblically educated. Our parents taught us each day when we sat down in the house, when we walked by the way, when we rose up. We bound God's laws as signs on our hands and billboards on our foreheads. We wrote them on the very doorposts of our house. We know the Bible. We're biblically educated. But to such people who claim to know God, God in essence says, you're unknown to me. He's not done yet. They also felt safe because of their spiritual superiority. Because of their spiritual superiority. The next verb reminds that they were servants of God's word. You Jews, he says, are, are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those, namely here lost Gentiles, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, referring to Gentile converts or what the Bible calls proselytes, a teacher of the immature. The Jews saw themselves as having superior insight to the law and therefore they were qualified to teach others. You're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. In other words, they were saying, what would God do without us? We're indispensable. How will those Gentile dogs ever know anything that's true about God apart from us? And of course, the Lord Jesus described these people as blind guides. He said they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. And Paul says, you're confident that you yourselves are a light to those who are in darkness. That's how they consider themselves. And they should have considered themselves that way because that's what God called them to be. A light to those who are in darkness. 
The prophet Isaiah, speaking of the Jewish people, said, God says to them, and I will appoint you as a light to the nations. The problem was, is they didn't shine that light on their own lives. You say you're a corrector of the foolish. The word corrector here, a noun that speaks of, of boundaries that are clearly well defined. And the reason the, the Jewish men in Jesus' day felt so superior is because they felt like they had a superior standard of morality. We must be right with God. We know the will of God. And so Paul says, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. These words foolish and immature, he's referring to those Gentile proselytes. A Gentile who forsook his idolatry and came to acknowledge that the God of Israel was the one true God. They left their pagan idolatry. Listen, are you listening to this point? Don't miss this. Don't think this is just about the Jew in the first century. The very things, the very things that they claimed, Jesus said on the last day in that final judgment, people who bear the name Christian will claim Lord, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we teach in your name? We witnessed for you. The eighth verb, highlighting the eighth reason they felt they could somehow escape the condemnation of God is they felt safe because of their superior wisdom. Because of their superior wisdom. These are closely related, but each one is distinct. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. They were not just saying they possessed the law and that they were physically the keepers of the scripture as we saw in number two. Now this is a little awkward to, to translate into English, but the King James has it more literal and actually perfect. It says, having the form of knowledge in the truth. Morphoes. They had the form. They were saying, listen, the Bible, the law, the scripture, the truth is formed in our life. And in that scathing sermon, Jesus says, in reality, just the opposite is true. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and on land and make one to make one proselyte, one Gentile convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Jesus said, listen, your religion is external only. Yeah, they could rattle off the Ten Commandments. They could tell you all the ceremonial procedures for washing their hands and for giving a sacrifice. But as we will see next time from verse 29, you can have all the externals without internal reality. And I wonder how many people in this country especially see themselves as superior to the rest of the world because they know the truth of the Bible. They can quote verses. They've taught Sunday school. They can point out the waywardness of the world, but in reality, they are part of the living dead. Now, those are eight reasons why the Jews would have felt safe. Tomorrow, we'll look at five reasons posed by the Apostle Paul that the Jews should have felt condemned before God. For a copy of today's study from Romans chapter 2, entitled The Living Dead, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and download program ROM9. You can also download and listen to it from our Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. We hope these studies from the Book of Romans are building up your ability to confidently share the truth of Christ 
with a world that is becoming increasingly ignorant of the gospel. We need your help in continuing our mission of sharing this truth over the airwaves and through the internet. If you can help, please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 or go online at searchthescriptures.org and make a generous tax-deductible contribution. Thank you. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the living dead. Join us then as we search the scriptures.